This classic statement on love, we'll analyze and talk about from a number of angles, but let's let it just pour over our soul. We have considered it before. We are familiar with it. But we need to continue to sound this word of love, this theme in our church, in our own hearts, and we come today to 1 Corinthians 13, where the Apostle Paul writes, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, And if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. The text breaks. As we look at characteristics of this love, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Another break. It also never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When... I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three. But the greatest of these is love. Lord, we need the aid of the Holy Spirit. We pray that you would infuse us with the presence of the Spirit to teach, to understand that with which we are certainly familiar as Christians. There may be some among us today who know not Christ as Savior, and for them we pray that they would enter into the love of God, that they would come to understand who you are as love, that they would come to embrace that love that you have demonstrated towards sinners. For those of us who know Christ as Savior, we thank you for the privilege to think again on this vital theme for our life in Christ. I pray that you'd bring conviction to me, to each one of us, that you would bring knowledge that you would instruct and teach and that we might be changed through our time together in the word move in this moment with us to develop us and grow us and we rejoice in the privilege to sit under your counsel may we do so together as a united body through christ we pray amen What English word combines the highest level of familiarity with the lowest degree of clarity? You'd be hard-pressed to beat love. It is widely used. I was walking through a store here this last week. The music is playing. It's there in every store. You never notice it, but I did for some reason, maybe because of this sermon. I don't know, but... Baby, baby, I'm falling in love, I'm falling in love again. Came just shooting out at me. And what I did there was stop and go, wow, that's amazing, a song about love. 
I can't believe that the secular world would ever use that word and ever sing a song about love. That's, isn't that fascinating? Do you think that's how I responded? <laughs> Clearly not. Pull love from popular music and it would, the industry would shrivel up overnight. It's not remarkable at all. The movie industry would unravel as well if the theme of love was pulled. The romance genre would die immediate death. But as you think about it, pretty much everything else would as well. It's there in everything, every story that we hear, every song that is sung in our broader world. But as familiar and oft-repeated as the word love is, definitional clarity is a problem, isn't it? We love ice cream. I do, at any rate. We love pets. We love our family. Ice cream, family. We love them both. We love sunny days and we love vacation and we love God. What on earth does this word mean? Love can speak of ultimate devotion. You can use the word that way of beautiful heartwarming things. This is love. But you can use the word without even thinking in the next sentence of a sappy, sentimental idea. It can have an erotic meaning, even illicit. It can be used in a way that is entirely trivial. It can be used even as a term of endearment. The delivery man comes in through the door, and the receptionist says, put the package over there, love. You know, the guy doesn't stop and go, what did you say? You, you love me? That's just a term of endearment. It means nothing, honestly. What does this word mean? How do we use it so widely? The Bible is no dictionary. And you will find nothing by way of a formal definition of love in the Scriptures. Bible scholars do formulate definitions because that's their job. But the word is as nearly as undefinable as it gets, at least the way that we use it in our language. The Apostle John veers as close to a definition as we will find when he declares that God is love. First 1 John 3.16, he says, By this we know, love, that Jesus laid down His life for us. So John indicates in these texts that love is primarily something you know and ultimately a person that you see. In its highest sense, when defining love, John does not turn to a dictionary. He points to the cross and says, There, see that. This one, the Son of God, dying in your place to pay the penalty of your sin, the cost of your rebellion against Him. There, that's love. See it. Know it. A willing self-sacrifice to pay the eternal cost of the believer's sin. And this should really put a thrill in our souls. If we get it, it will. To think that we know and we see. That we know and see. The epitome of love in our Father giving His Son who then redeems His people. It means that we are privileged to consider love from an angle that is unknown outside of Christ. We come and see the cross. We see the God who is love. We know this God through Christ. And by the washing of regeneration through the Spirit, we are privileged to consider this love from an angle that is unknown in this world. People speak of love. They use it in a million ways. They sing about it. They picture it. They talk about it. They pursue it. But if you don't know Christ crucified, you don't really know what love is. There is its epitome. What this also means then is that love can transform our relationships as members of the body of Christ. We can tap this love and it can change how we relate to one another. 
so that what happens here is not only a knowledge and an insight that no one else has or sees, but actually a project that's going on where God by His Spirit is changing the way that we relate to one another. Something unique happening among us as the love of God operates in our relationships. And this relational transformation is what really frames the Apostle Paul's classic text here on love in 1 Corinthians 13. Paul is not about defining love here in any formal sense of the word. He is rather celebrating it, helping us to know it, to sense it, to understand it in that way. Paul writes to a church, as we know, that is experiencing deep division among its members. Seeking clarity in their turmoil, the Corinthians have asked Paul a question. We don't know precisely what that question was. But it's about miraculous gifts, and particularly miraculous tongues in the assembly, which I define to be genuine languages you have never studied or understood that you are able to speak through the power of the Holy Spirit. That was taking place in the assembly at Corinth. And there was much pride in this assembly. There was exhibitionism. There was division resulting from some in the assembly who had received these miraculous spiritual gifts were putting them into play in the church as the Spirit intended. But there were individuals who believed that this uniquely evidenced the Spirit's presence in their life and that on some level they were superior to others. They were, as Paul uses the term repeatedly, puffed up. They had big heads because of what the Spirit was enabling them to do to bless the assembly. So whatever the question was, Paul begins to address it in chapter 12, not by addressing the question, but he starts, he starts first with the call to unity. Your question and your experience is really missing the entire point. In chapter 12, Paul stresses that spiritual gifts are intended to unite the church, not divide it. And that every member, however gifted, had an important role to play in maintaining the vitality of the body. Every one matters, whatever gift the Spirit of God has given. So Paul cuts the ground out from underneath those who are using miraculous gifts in competitive and self-promoting ways. The entire project is about being united, many members in this one body experiencing the work of the Spirit in their lives to build up the church. And there are indeed higher gifts to that end. Chapter 12, verse 30, he says, Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? That whole list, of course not. But earnestly desire the higher gifts earnestly desire the higher gifts. Not higher gifts in the sense of showing how important one member is over others. He's destroyed that thought throughout chapter 12. But higher gifts in that they have a unique power to build up the church. And this is where he will, in the end, after a lot of discussion, he ends up in the end in chapter 14 to say that prophecy really is superior. And for one simple point, people can understand it. They know what you're saying. As you receive a word from the Lord and speak it to the church, people hear it and get it. There's a benefit to that because it builds up the church. There is a higher gift here. But Paul moves higher yet in chapter 13. It's like the question they ask, he just doesn't really want to answer it without an awful lot of qualification. So in this case, the porch is bigger than the house as he builds his way to get them to that concept and answering the question they're asking. There's a higher way yet, verse 31. I will show you a still more excellent way. So Paul is not setting out here to provide a formal definition of love. He's not setting out to provide an idyllic picture of love so we can use it at weddings. If we get into the context, and I think the passage is certainly very useful at weddings, but if we get into the context of it, this is gritty stuff, 1 Corinthians 13. It's in the trenches, spiritual counsel designed to unite and strengthen a divided local church. 
So as he talks this way about love, it's not just meant to be this flowery thing set out there all by itself to be observed like a museum piece. He's talking to real Christians who aren't loving one another. And he's saying, if you will understand who you are, chapter 12, and if you will understand what love is, chapter 13, then we can talk about how to relate with the different gifts that you are experiencing. Was it true that miraculous powers were on display in the Corinthian assembly? Yes, it is. There's no one that denies that. No one that takes the Bible seriously. Were they truly tapping kingdom powers? Yes, they were. Yet Paul says there is a higher focus you should adopt, a superior way of living together. It's more important than these miraculous powers. And for us, that is then very significant. But we find, first of all, as we've read it in verses 1 through 3, that Christian love qualifies every deed. It qualifies every deed. It vets it. Without love, even miraculous powers cannot qualify us as useful to God. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love... I'm a noisy gong, a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. They were saying, those that were demonstrating this gift, I am something. I am someone because of this. Paul says, if it comes without love, I'm nothing. Now the gift may have some benefit in the assembly, but you as the one having been given that gift, are nothing if it's not displayed in love. Now in verse 1 where he speaks of the tongues of angels, I don't think his point there is to say that they have their own language. For that matter, every time we see an angel speak, they're speaking to people who understand them. But maybe, maybe they have their own language, maybe they don't. I don't think that's what Paul's setting out here to describe. He's saying that if you had the miraculous ability to speak in every earthly language, I mean, think of it, really. He's saying, think of, I want you to think about this. You could speak in every human language on earth. If you could do that, and you could even speak with the tongues of heaven, every earthly language, every heavenly language, whether speaking figuratively or literally, it doesn't really matter. He's just saying, if you could speak that way but spoke without love for God and His people, you would be nothing more than a noisy gong. You would just be making noise for a slight section of the congregation this is Charlie Brown listening to the teacher, right? It's just da, 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 da. Nothing. Just talk. That's all it is. As far as you're concerned, that's all it is. You're just like a gong. The prophetic powers he speaks of in verse 2, the mysteries, the knowledge, these are gifts that allow you to see realities that no one but God can see and those to whom he chooses to reveal them. That's pretty heady stuff. And faith that can move mountains. I don't think that's saving faith, putting your trust in Christ, but the kind of faith that moves mountains, that puts trust in God. God could give you mountain-moving faith, and God could reveal to you the secrets of his mind and will. God might do that with an individual, but if that one wields these powers without love, he says, understand, you're nothing. You're nothing. It doesn't matter how accurate you are. It doesn't matter how miraculous it is. It doesn't matter how many people attention to it, pay attention to it. Without love, you are nothing. Now again, many people will celebrate your name and announce that you are something. But it's a lie, says Paul. Having any one of these powers, here in verse 2, having any one of these powers would be humanly... I'm sorry, having any one of these three powers would be humanly impossible. Prophetic powers understanding all mysteries and all knowledge. That's not humanly possible, but having all three without love would be entirely meaningless if you did. Without love, even miraculous powers cannot qualify us as useful to God. 
Verse 3, without love, even ultimate sacrifices cannot qualify us as useful to God. If I give away all I have, there the idea of the Greek is if I divide everything up into small fragments and parcel it out to a lot of people, so I let go of every earthly possession for the good of others, sending it out to places I don't even know where it's going. If I would do that, if I would give away everything that I have, verse 3, if I would deliver up my body to be burned, We don't quite know what he means there. It's not martyrdom. It's not self-immolation, something like that. He's just saying, if I ran into a burning building and died to save people, something along those lines, if I did that, the end of verse 3, but have not love, I gain nothing. It's no profit to me if I don't have love. So it's clear that Paul is establishing we absolutely must have love. Puffed up people celebrating who they are in a competitive spirit, fighting and warring and dividing with one another, saying, look at me, look at me, I'm serving God. Paul says, without love, you people are nothing. We absolutely must have love. Without it, we gain nothing, and without it, we are nothing. Now, Paul's not speaking ontologically here. We are worthless people that God despises. He speaks rather of our status as members of Christ's body. Think again of Corinth. He's telling these puffed up people who think I'm something, you are nothing without love. We can serve God in many ways, but remain empty if we do not serve out of love for Him and love for people. You might have been here last week as we looked at 1 Corinthians 12 and said, you know, I, I, I left saying, I don't know what my spiritual gift is. What would that be? How could I contribute? I can see the revelation here in 1 Corinthians 12 that God wants all of us to participate in His work, building up His church. There's something that I can do, but I don't really know what it should be. I don't know how I fit that. This is great counsel here. The counsel is not to sit on your head in a corner and mumble until the idea comes into your head. And it's not to go take some type of survey and work it out and figure out what the Spirit showed you. This is where it starts, is love people. You love people, your gift will be made clear and maybe first to them before it is to you. Just love people. That's the point. And what does that look like? How do we relate to one another in love? Christian love qualifies every deed. It's absolutely essential. But secondly, here at verse 4, Christian love exhibits characteristic traits. We have to know what it truly is. It's not left to us to just define it however we want to define it. Here's what it looks like, verse 4. Love is patient. Whenever we find a list of words in the, in the New Testament, it's a little problematic in a preaching setting. We kind of work through one word after another and your eyes start to roll up in the back of your head and it's just, it's like, how do you keep this all straight? How do we look at it all? But I, I would just encourage you, we got to do a little work here. Let's do that work and do so with the spotlight on myself, on yourself. Do I love? Do I love others? What does love look like? We don't. We have a lot to gain, and we do if we're truly Christ's people. But we want to be pressed by these words. So don't let the list put you to sleep. But think about this. Is this who I am? Is this the love that I have? What is love like? First of all, verse 4, it's patient. It's talking here about with people, not with circumstances as such. But love displays a steadfast spirit that endures the wrongs others commit against us, patiently resisting resentment and retaliatory responses. Love guards us from exploding in anger, seething in bitterness, or seeking revenge. Love endures people who wrong us. Love is able to rebuke others, but it does so patiently, Offering constructive, truthful words, not derogatory, condemning, exasperated, bitter, or untruthful words. This is patient, what God is to us. 
And how patient should we then be with one another, enduring? Love is kind. Kindness is a disposition which seeks actively and appropriately to benefit other people. It acts, it gives, it blesses. Jonathan Edwards has a great line in Charity and Its Fruits. He says, The proper and conclusive evidence of our wishing or willing to do good to another is to do it. That's that simple. It's just to do it. Not to think about it, but to actually demonstrate kindness. Kindness is no merely sentimental feeling about someone or a merely gregarious spirit. Kindness serves. It gives it learns to see life in the perspective of others and to respond by acting for their benefit. It does not envy. That is, love keeps us from drawing comparisons with others and permitting the gases of resentment and bitterness to ferment and to poison my spirit. I should have what he has. Why does she like her more than me? I can't believe he was chosen over me. My life would be so much better if I had her house, if I had his wife, if I had those parents. Love never says those things. It doesn't envy what someone else has. The truth of the matter is with envy is that since God sovereignly ordains what comes to pass, envy reveals that I don't like what God has chosen. Faith in God severs the root of envy with the blade of contentment and trust. I trust Him. I'm content in Him. I rest in Him. I don't have to envy. Love does not boast. That is, love does not brag. Love does not use self-deprecating words in a veiled attempt to solicit praise either. Love wipes self-promoting speeches from our lips and turns the focus to edification. It is not arrogant. That means, and here the Greek word is puffed up. You six times out of the seven in the New Testament in this book. That tells you something. It's not puffed up. This was a problem, a major problem in that church. Love does not entertain thoughts of superiority over others. Love empties our hearts of conceit and it keeps us aware that we are made of flesh, that we are weak, that we are flawed, that we are creaturely. So it's not arrogant. It doesn't run around puffing out its chest and getting a big head. Verse 5, it's not rude. Love does not behave indecently or shamefully or without tact or without respect is the word. That is, love is always innately thoughtful of others. What they may think, how they may feel, how my actions may unnecessarily offend. Love does not use humor in a harmful way. It does not blow off cultural expectations and it does not act disrespectfully. Some of this, honestly, is personality plays into it. There are people who can get away with humor that's endearing in the, word, in the mouth of someone else. It's absolutely humiliating to other people. It's harmful to them. We have to know who we are, what we can get away with, how we can use humor to benefit. But to not be rude, but tactful, decent, appropriate. Love does not insist on its own way. That is, love steers us away from power politics and manipulative schemes to get our way. I can't get there this way, but I'll try this way. And I'll see if I can get my way. It's not pushy, it's not insistent or self-assertive. It's willing to defer to others where it may, giving itself, not asserting itself. Love is not irritable. That is, it's not touchy, it's not overly sensitive, it's it's not easily exasperated with people. Love equips us to handle insults and injury without melting down in a fit of anger, without running away to pout somewhere. It's like sparks landing in a lake rather than sparks landing in an open barrel of gunpowder. It's not irritable. It doesn't catch the spark and blow up but it squashes the spark. It 
extinguishes it. It keeps no record of wrongs. That doesn't mean that it's always evil to record a wrong committed against us. We've got an employee who is stealing supplies from your business and you videotape the crime. Paul's not saying you have to throw that out. You can't turn it over to the police. That's not the point, of course. But the point is, love doesn't keep a mental ledger sheet of the wrongs that others have committed against us in order to gossip or to get even. I'm going to keep this sheet and use it against the person. I'm going to keep this record of wrongs that my husband has committed, that my wife has committed, that that church member has committed. I'm going to keep this ledger alive in my head and bring it into play where I can do so for my own advantage. Love doesn't do that. It does not rehearse wrongs suffered in order to fuel the fires of resentment and hatred. Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing. That is, love does not rejoice when someone does wrong, and love does not rejoice when wrong is done to someone. It doesn't delight in those kinds of developments. Love pulls us away from the tabloid culture that celebrates evil deeds and takes guilty delight in the misfortune of others. It rejoices in the truth rather than rejoicing in wrong. Love does not convert us into cheerleaders for evil. It gets us excited about all that corresponds to God as the ultimate reality. And that, of course, demands that love has a strong backbone and a courageous spirit. Love, verse 7, bears all things. That is, it covers all things, is the Greek word. Love seeks to minimize differences where possible, to overlook offenses, even suffering wrong quietly, so as to avoid hurting others. It believes all things. Love gives people the benefit of the doubt. It does not major in suspicion. It does not sniff out conspiracy as a pastime love is willing to appropriately leave people in god's hands i mean there's a place where we can't do that but there's a place where we should i can trust god with you love believes all things it hopes all things that is love has confidence in god's grace to change people and a confidence in god's sovereignty that frees us to serve others this is not foolish optimism about people but it is a spirit that refuses to walk away saying there's no hope for you i give up love keeps giving it keeps reaching out it hopes all things it always perseveres love supplies a courageous energy that holds up under trial it doesn't quit on a marriage that's struggling it doesn't quit on a relationship that's difficult it just keeps plowing on that's why i say this is gritty stuff in fact as we consider these characteristics we could draw three observations just briefly But first, love demands self-control. Not one of these characteristics of love emits from pure emotion. It's just how I want to feel, necessarily. And hopefully the feeling follows like the caboose follows the engine. But that's not where it starts. That, That love is this emotion, it's this feeling that I'm falling into. Every one of these characteristics, each one of them is volitional. That is, each demands that we exercise control over our natural passions and our natural feelings. And that we exercise that for the love of God and the love of others. Love curbs and manages emotions. I don't know how else to read these characteristics without drawing that conclusion. I look at it and say with every single word, that's hard. That takes work to go against my natural bent. I have to make decisions. I have to marshal emotions in order to love. Secondly, love demands what we could call blue-collar grit. That is, love rolls up its sleeves and gets its hands dirty in the lowly trenches of a fallen world. It doesn't keep clean hands and stay away from dirty people. 
It conquers from the ground up, not from the mountaintop experience. Love mixes it up with broken, even hostile people and keeps laboring to say the right thing, do the right thing, endure wrong, be patient, watch words, give itself away, consider others in the trenches of life. That's hard work. That's messy. And it will often be messy. And thirdly, love renders one vulnerable. And that's so much the challenge of it for us. It renders one vulnerable. Lenski writes, while love treats others with kindness, consideration, and unselfishness, it in turn receives much of the opposite. It receives much of the opposite. But the picture here that you see as you work through verses 4 through 7, I don't think the picture you're seeing there right now is in a mirror. I don't think you're seeing yourself there. I epitomize that. What's the picture we're seeing here? This is Jesus. This gets really close, as close as human words can come to saying, this is what it would be like to know Him, to walk with Him. This is what His disciples saw on display every day. They saw this. This is how he related to them, and this is how he taught them to relate to one another. As he called them to serve one another, to love one another, and demonstrated that for them. That's what Paul is picturing here. So love qualifies every deed, and it exhibits characteristics or traits that we need to know, we need to see, and we need to discern. The thirdly, Christian love is superior to all spiritual gifts. And this too we need to know, and certainly the Corinthians needed to know this. Or Paul says love never ends, verse 8. It never ends. Please know this, and we'll see this through the context. You've perhaps picked this up even in our earlier reading. But notice here that there's a, this is a temporal statement. It's dealing with time. Love will endure forever. There is never a day that it will be rendered obsolete or unnecessary. Notice verse 8. Love never ends. It endures forever. It's timeless. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. So spiritual gifts will not endure. Corinthian church, you're enamored with these gifts. You're being puffed up by them. You're competing with one another over them. God in His mercy has given these gifts to His church to build it up, but you're tearing it down. And realize this, what you're playing with has a shelf life. This is not going to continue forever. These prophecies are just temporal. These miraculous gifts are granted for a time as the risen Christ establishes His church by authenticating the apostolic message but they have a shelf life. What do you mean, Paul? Verse 9. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. At least, Paul means this, perfection renders imperfection obsolete. Maturity displaces immaturity. Paul illustrates his meaning. He moves on to verse 11 and says, When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. Notice the temporal words again. When, in the past, now, when I became a man, as I came to maturity, I gave up childish ways. I gave them up is the same Greek word translated pass away in verse 8. They passed away. My interest in these things were gone. They were displaced by maturity. So we have this little boy from very early age that absolutely loves cars. And his parents splurge on one of those cars that actually works in the driveway. You know, one of those little things, you pedal, but it has a steering wheel, and it has tires, and it has a seat and a roof, and this is a car. He has his car. 
Well, his father's a really dumb man, and he buys him a brand new sports car at age 15, where he can take his, his driving lessons in this brand new sports car, and he gives him this car. And that little toy car now is collecting dust in the garage as this kid looks over every inch of that car and loves that car. Maturity has displaced immaturity. Perfection, this perfect new sports car, has displaced the little toy. That's where Paul's tracking here. And he says, right now, Corinthians, we're in a stage of immaturity, of incomplete revelation. Love doesn't end. Prophecies, however, will. Tongues will. Knowledge will. For we know in part right now, and we prophesy in part right now. I think the idea there is that God gives pieces of information, but there's a complete day that is coming that will displace all of these temporal things that you think are so utterly important. Like this little boy that thinks his toy car is so important. It's the best thing on earth. Dad's saying in his mind, someday this is going to get replaced. That's where you're at, Corinthians, Paul says. For now, verse 12, we see in a mirror dimly. But then, you see the temporal word again, then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully even as I have been fully known. Now there are many interpretive challenges in these verses. I've already indicated some of my conclusions without taking you into the details of it, and you can all thank me later. But uh, there's a lot here. And in fact, would love to talk through pieces of it afterwards today as we have time to interact if you wish to do that. I know there's a lot here that I've skipped over as far as describing why I've come to these conclusions. But I will say this to make it clear. I believe that face-to-face is a reference of being in God's presence. The biblical use of that phrase or similar phrases makes this, in my thinking, almost certain. There were no actual there was no actual mirror until the 13th century but the Romans used a piece of polished metal which as you can imagine was rather imprecise in the reflection that it gave it gave you some image but that's what he's using here we we look in this polished metal as our mirror we look in that to gain a picture of who we are but we see in that dimly that there will be a day when we see face to face Real person facing real person. And so as we receive these prophecies and as God grants tongues and the interpretation of tongues and the message of knowledge, we're seeing dimly, but a day is coming when the faith will be sight, when hope will be realized, we will stand in the presence of our Lord and Savior and our knowledge then will be utterly complete. When that day comes, prophecies and tongues and revelatory knowledge will be rendered obsolete, inoperative, old news. I do believe, though I would track differently here from some in the interpretation of verses 10 and 11, I do believe, along with Jonathan Edwards, that the completion of the Bible rendered the revelatory gifts obsolete, unnecessary, a fuller revelation had come. But I would also agree with him that that's not what the time element is here in verses 10 and 11. Rather, that Paul is speaking here about meeting Christ. The Bible, the New Testament, is not complete when Paul writes this. We need to bring that into the picture here. But I don't think that's what he's talking about here in verses 10 through 12, but rather when all is complete in the presence of Christ. However, again, the argument could be made that the written scriptures are a fuller revelation. That's just not his point here. His point here is that these gifts will pass away. They are temporal. They will be one day utterly unnecessary. But all that aside, this then is where we need to land. That love 
endures. It will never cease. It's not temporal. It's not passing away. It's not here just for this life. Love never ends. So now, faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love because it will not ever pass away. Faith and hope will, I suppose, endure also forever on some level, but they will be changed when faith becomes sight and our hope is realized in the presence of Christ, when we stand before Him face to face, so to speak. We will live forever trusting God. We will live forever believing in His promises for the future. But faith will be sight and hope will be complete. But love will endure forever. Because God who is love will endure forever. And we will be in His presence forever. Heaven and the new earth ultimately will be a realm of love. And it is that love that we are privileged as a local church to put on display in our relationships with one another. Very imperfectly. Ever needing to grow. But one day, what is displayed so imperfectly here will be celebrated in perfection in His presence. In the presence of Christ in a realm where love will be breathed into everything with pristine wonder, we will for the first time enter into a world, a relationship, where there is no envy. There is no cynicism. There is no bitterness, selfishness, unkindness, There is no rivalry there, no hatred, no depression, no anger, no favoritism, no mistrust. Gone. In the presence of Christ, love will reign forever. For God is love. These glories if understood, if perceived, have to change the way that this church lives. It has to change the way that we relate to one another. It will keep us from plugging into the way the world sees love as something you simply fall into, something that benefits you, something that you feel the charge. And it will lead us in our relationships with one another to look beyond this world, to love that will never end in the presence of a Savior who loved us with the ultimate display of love. Setting all personal protection aside, setting aside every emotional chain that tied Him from going to the cross aside, And taking that walk forward to pay the penalty of our lack of love. The love we don't display to one another. The places where we not only don't look very much like verses 4 through 7, but where we wholeheartedly go the other way. He died for us to say this is love. We fall immensely short. But by the grace of God, there is love here. There is love in this assembly. As little children, we're putting it into play. We're striving forward in it. We're hearing what the Spirit of God says and we're adjusting our natural bent to live differently, more maturely, and to reflect these grand realities to which we are traveling. And where this love continues to take root, it changes the way that we relate to one another, it changes marriages, it changes relationships between children and parents, it changes church members. So Corinthians... 
I'm going to talk to you about tongues. I'm going to talk to you about prophecy. We've got to work some things out in this dingy, dimly lit world in which we live right now. But before I get to any of that, love one another. That's where it all starts. And that's where it all ends. Love one another. And that love begins with a God who is love and has reached down to us in Christ. May this church stand as a display and a witness of that love. That starts for us who are in this church with repentance to realize this is not how I live. This is not who I am. There is much to change. But it also starts with a recognition that that love is operative. And for those who know not Christ, it starts here as well. To repent of your own self-centered orientation and trust and to put that trust in the Christ who loved you and died on the cross to pay the penalty of your sin. Rising from the dead to give life to those who are dead in transgressions and sins. Lord, as we close this chapter, we realize that we have but scratched its surface. We realize that we have left so much unsaid. And we feel that we've handled it roughly and considered it too lightly. But I pray that through your Spirit you would draw to Christ those who know Him not and grow and nurture and change those of us who do. May your will be done in this church that we would become a family that loves one another. We pray for your help to that end. And again, we pray in behalf of those who have not come to see the love of Christ and pray that you would draw them to that end today. Through Jesus we pray.